My grandfather was born in Mississippi and was a sharecropper on a cotton farm. With only an elementary education, he eventually moved to a small Illinois town to work for John Deere. After working for over 20 years, he established his wealth through entrepreneurship, namely real estate. Remember, he would say to me as a child, jobs are to pay your bills. If you want to be successful and make real money, do something else. Though he was successful, his journey was challenging and fraught with various hardship. It actually reminds me of an excerpt from a piece from Inc. Magazine authored by Webb Smith called What It Really Means to Be a Black Entrepreneur in America. And I quote, Regardless of race or ethnicity, entrepreneurs always begin at a disadvantage. However, blacks tend to need to reach levels of traction with our own money, since seed money is often unavailable. This contributes to the rarity of URM entrepreneurs. Richard Kirby, vice president of Vinrock, recently compiled a list that reported a total of 23 African-American investors in the U.S. It should be of no surprise that black founders receive less than 1% of institutional capital. As important as money is the ability to realize your potential through mentorship and direction. This begins with confidence, belonging, and familiarity. End quote. Listen to that. Confidence, belonging, and familiarity. Networking is the catalyst for each of these things, but what does building such networks look like for underrepresented communities? My name is Zach, and you're listening to Living Corporate. So, Today we're talking about entrepreneurship and what it means to be an entrepreneur as a non-white person. I'm glad that we're dedicating an episode to this. Living Corporate isn't just about working for someone else, but also we want to explore ways in which you can work for yourself. For sure. And shout out to your grandpa. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it's expiring for sure. And while it's impressive, you know, he built his empire uh, through real estate in a small Midwestern town after building up decades of social equity by being in the community, right? Like he bought homes uh, like no one else was really wise enough to invest in. Then he fixed them himself. Then he managed all of his own maintenance on those homes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he weaved his own bootstraps out of thin air and then pulled himself up by them. Like he's an amazing success story, no doubt. To your point, in 2019, the world is just way more connected and social, which is cool. But it also creates more invisible hurdles and rules and just stuff to navigate and being a full-time or even moderately successful part-time entrepreneur, right? And and those three things that you quoted, uh, confidence, belonging, and familiarity, those are all needed in the hyper-connected world. It's just funny because I was telling a colleague that because of that fact that entrepreneurship success is built on access to capital, which line relationships, that people of color are well-benefited by having partners and backing that don't really look like them. And I remember I had this conversation and you would think that this person like thought that I had said, I don't know, it's just something like really racist or like, (laughs) 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 what are you talking about? What what are you, what are you trying to say? I mean, you know, anybody can do anything. I was like, okay, all right. Yes. 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 We can do anything. And it also helps to know the right people so that we can have access to things so that we can do the things that we want. I mean, like let's like let's be realistic. It frustrates me sometimes when we talk about like success and drive striving to do better and building things that we don't acknowledge like the very real capitalist structures that we 
that exist, right? Like that, not even that we're fighting against, but that we have to plug into to be successful. Like, come on, like it's, this is America. It's everybody does not, everybody with a great idea does not wake up and then work really hard towards that idea and then somehow like become successful. There's plenty of people out there with great ideas who work very hard, who are never successful, right? Right. And because people of color often don't have access to the power or the relationships um, or the rooms in which these bills are being made in these countries to be movers and shakers, there's a bit of a disadvantage. Let's look at the most prominent black clothing brand ever, FUBU. Long story short, FUBU popped off by having a relationship with LL Cool J. And yes, that LL Cool J. He is black, but guess who else uh, LL Cool J had a commercial partnership with? Gap. He plugged FUBU in the middle of a Gap promotional commercial. And he did it while he was rapping, so nobody who was on set or uh, was clearing the, the, the ad afterwards really noticed. Right. And it's a crazy story, but people just forget about that. And the fact that Damon John, he had a ton of creative methods to promote FUBU, right? Like he had a ton of different ways he was kind of getting it on the street. But it was that Gap commercial. That's the one that really got him on the map. And really, if anyone who studies FUBU and studies like advertising, they know about the LL commercial, right? Like it's, a, it's common knowledge. That's the That was the tipping point for that brand. And so like the point is entrepreneurship is changing already. Like the majority of entrepreneurs don't make it. But being someone who doesn't have advantages built on centuries of historical inequity makes it even harder. Not to say it's, it isn't possible. I'm not saying that it's impossible at all. It's just it's just hard. Correct. Wouldn't it be dope if we had an entrepreneur with, let's say, over a 15-year track record of successfully launching dozens of new products or services in the food and beverage, media, and industrial goods industry? In fact... I would love to hear from someone who has experienced maybe launching a brand from concept to the shelves of three of the top 10 grocery chains in the country. Oh, you mean like our guest, Mike C. Johnson? <gasps> what? <laughs> y'all thought, y'all thought we don't have these uh, air horns this season. Y'all thought. Bloop. Y'all thought. Yes, right. Bloop. We still here with these air horns. We're here with these air horns. More fire for your head top. I'm not playing. Sound this man. is really y'all, Zach. <laughs> Blaming it on you. I'm just. Hey, listen. Drop the air horns. In fact, hold on. Drop extra air horns because we had someone who was actually from Jamaica hit us up on Instagram and said, "Please keep the air horns coming and make them louder." So we make them louder. Make them louder. So we I here mean, for I'm, y'all. I'm not we surprised. here for the people because we got it like that. We love y'all. Okay. <laughs> not surprised. Not surprised in the least. All right, y'all. Keep listening for a really dope conversation. And we're back. And as we shared before the break, we have Mike Johnson with us. Welcome to the show, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? I'm doing really good, man. Uh, So today we're talking about entrepreneurship. So can you tell me, where did your entrepreneurial itch come from or start with? Oh, man, um, I really can trace it back to my early 20s. I had a couple ventures around that time that I that I uh, went after. I uh, had a, a website called Virtual RE Gallery, which was basically a, uh, a website that displayed virtual tours of 
uh, real estate listings before virtual tours were pretty popular. Um, I was a realtor for a little while and I also did some construction on the side. So I've always kind of had that aspiration to somewhat control my own destiny. But I would say what really motivated me to start Roll T was just as I learned more about marketing and innovation, always just had this dream to want to turn an idea or a vision to a concept and go start to finish and pretty much have complete control over how that product will come to market. So um, that, that to me has been the most gratifying part of entrepreneurship. Even to this day, when I walk into a store or a restaurant and I see someone, you know, drinking roll tea and, you know, just randomly that to this day, it still makes me real excited because I'm like, man, three years ago, that product was just an idea in my head. And now people can actually purchase it and consume it in a store. So um, that's just the, probably the most gratifying thing is just to have that control over the idea from start to finish. That's amazing. And, and you know, and, and you talking about your previous ventures, it reminds me of another question that, you know, in season one, we had a guest who brought up the concept of failing forward, failing quickly and failing forward. And so can you talk a little bit about that concept and perhaps what some, some of your biggest L's and we'll say L's are lessons uh, that you've taken in, in your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, man, that's, that's a, a great question. Um, the, the crazy thing for me about failure that I've learned in this experience is that, you know, I've realized that you really only fail at almost anything when you quit. Like going into this venture, you know, sometimes your mind could play tricks on you. You start thinking about the worst things that could happen and failure and whatnot. But when you get into it, you realize that, man, virtually everything that happens to a business can be resolved if you have the fortitude to try to work through it. So, I mean, and, you know, we're no different. Like, you know, everyone talks about the, the great side of entrepreneurship, but, man, we've had at least four or five near-death experiences with our company in two years. Like, you know, from running out of cash, which a lot of startups have that issue with running out of money, to, you know, having key suppliers back out last minute, literally weeks before launching into Wegmans, which is a 95-plus grocery, grocery chain from Virginia up to upstate New York. Um, to having distributors back out the last minute. I mean, all of these things have taken out other companies. But for us, we just looked at it as, you know, okay, here's another problem. You know, what are our options to get past it? And you, you kind of take it on the chin and move forward. So, you know, you really only fail at almost anything when you quit or when you run out of, you know, hands to play. So once you realize that and you realize that, wow, you know, what happens with me in this business is largely up to my control, it's kind of empowering once you realize that. Um, but as far as just lessons in general around business, to me, the two biggest lessons that come to mind for me is the, the first one is, is just starting as small as you can until you can completely validate the concept. And when I say validate the concept, I mean that, you know, that you have a, a product or a concept that people are going to want to buy, um, where the economics of it will actually be able to create a business, right? There's a lot of ideas out there that you can sell, but you're never going to get the price point that you need to actually have a business, um, making sure that you actually know who the consumer is, you know how to talk to them or the channels to sell to them. Those are all the things that are required to really validate a concept. And it's best to try to do that on a very small scale to start. Um, that's definitely been a lesson um, that we've learned early on. And then I think the second big lesson that I've learned in this uh, in terms of failure as well is just um, trying to get the business to a point where it could be self-sustainable as quickly as possible, right? So we're, right now we're going through some pretty you know dramatic changes around our operations 
to get a little bit more margin back in-house versus giving it to a supplier or outsourced vendor. Um, and that's just all in an effort to get our business to a point where it can pretty much eat off of what it kills, right? We can sustain ourselves based on our own sales as opposed to relying too much on outside investment. So that's a piece of advice that I would I would give to any aspiring entrepreneur. Even if you want to raise capital, it's just good to have financial discipline to try to get your business as self-sustainable as possible, as quickly as possible. So there, there's many lessons, but those two stand out the most. And so, you know, you've talked, you talked a little bit about royalty and we're definitely going to get into that as we get further along in this interview. Yep. I'm curious to know about your, your ventures. Could you, would you mind walking us through? Typically when I meet, the reason why I ask your ventures is because typically when I meet entrepreneurs, they may have like one big thing, but they have a few other things kind of cooking around them. So I'm curious to know what are your, uh, your ventures right now? No, yeah, that's, uh, it's very true. Um, we tend to have short attention spans, so it's easy to kind of get involved with different things. You know, we launched Roll T in December, November timeframe of 2016. So we're right at the two years. And to be honest, man, aside from, you know, being a new father, which I actually became a father the same year I became an entrepreneur with Roll T, that's been my primary focus. Um, now that Roll T is a little bit more um, established in terms of distributors and it doesn't take as much of me doing virtually everything to keep it going. I am starting to get back a little bit into consulting. Um, that's something that I did prior to uh, launching Roll T. So I do like to work with other startups and help them however way I can. Um, but aside from that, man, the, the bulk of my focus right now is with Roll T. What challenges do you believe that you've had as a black entrepreneur? And I ask that because... In the research that Ade and I have been doing, we've noticed that there are some challenges that are unique uh, to being a a non-white builder of businesses. And so I'm curious to know, like, have you have you run into any challenges that you believe are unique juxtaposed to your white counterparts? And if so, what are they? Entrepreneurship, just inherent in the way it is, is already built with plenty of challenges, white, black, yellow, whatever. Right, right. Um, so sometimes it could be a challenge to understand okay, is this a challenge that I'm facing because I'm simply an entrepreneur or is this a challenge that I'm facing because I'm a black entrepreneur? And that could be difficult sometimes to decipher. Um, but one one challenge that I think is definitely um, tied to us being, you know, African-American-owned business, especially in the food and beverage industry, is just the fact that, you know, we are launching a beverage brand that is our intent is to scale to 100 plus million in sales and potentially exit. So we're treating our business like a true startup, not like a family owned business where we're just, you know, looking to sell locally and et cetera. And I think that that's a very different thing in the food and beverage industry amongst a black entrepreneur that most people would expect. So I think that just simply not having a whole lot of examples to point to of Black-owned food and beverage brands that have been able to do that successfully makes it hard for a lot of people to see the vision and see the potential in our concept. And I think that's especially true primarily with investors. Um, we've actually had you know, pretty good success with, for example, some major retailers. We've gotten our product onto the shelf of Whole Foods, of Wegmans. Those are two of the top-rated grocery chains in the country. Um, Hy-Vee is another one, you know, but from a business standpoint, I think that's where we've seen most of the challenge in terms of, you know, working with investors and things of that nature. And I think that's largely because 
there's just not a whole lot of examples of of, of African American owned food and beverage brands that have done it to that level, which is what we're aspiring to do. So um, I'm sure that there is plenty more, but that's definitely one that I can I can say for certain. I think is unique um, to us. So, what advice would you give to the person who thinks, you know, entrepreneurship is an all or nothing thing, and it isn't? They're not starting their journey because they're afraid of missing a, a steady paycheck. Yeah, man, that's definitely something that is I find is very common amongst a lot of people. I struggle with that myself. Um, the first thing is you don't have to be all in to be an entrepreneur, right? Don't listen to everything that you see on Instagram and, you know, social media. There's a lot of people out here glamorizing entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship is great, right? I spent 12 plus years in the corporate world and now I'm two years as an entrepreneur. So I can, I can give you the perspective of both sides and it's definitely a lot of advantages on the entrepreneur side, but there is nothing wrong with side hustling it for as long as you can, right? That extra paycheck from your job is it, it actually can position your business to be more successful. Um, you know, thankfully, I have 12 plus years of experience in the corporate world, working for other people, learning, collecting that nice six figure salary so that I can actually build up a savings to even have a chance to do what I'm doing now. So it, it's all about when is the right time for you, even if you ever want to go all in. Right. All in is meaning your your full time with your entrepreneurship venture. But um, that's the first thing is don't feel pressure to go all in. Right. Um and when you go all in is another big question that I hear a lot. And it's also one that I a challenge that I dealt with. And, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Everyone has to look at their particular situation to know when is the right time. But um, I will say that there's there's probably about four or five things that, you know, anyone that's in that situation is looking to do the transition to go all in. They should be looking at like the, the first thing is, you know, what does your business require? Like, for example, if you're going to launch a catering business versus a restaurant, you know, two very different demands and requirements, right? If you're talking about a restaurant, you have to deal with a storefront, which likely comes with remodeling, et cetera. Not the typical type of thing that you can get, you know, to market on the weekends and, and evenings, right? Whereas a catering service, you can do that evenings, weekends. You can pretty much side hustle that until you actually get paying customers before you even have to leave your job. So, the type of business that you're looking to start a lot of times will dictate largely when you can actually go all in or, or if and when you can actually cut the, the, the nine to five path. Um, the other thing you got to look at is, you know, what type of support do you have going into it? Right. Do you have people, whether it's family members or friends that can help you out early on without having to get paid? Right. I mean, early on, there's no cash coming in to get it stood up. You're going to need people to help. You're going to need your team. Um, what type of support do you have? If you have a pretty good support system, you may be able to go all in a little bit sooner. Um, also, you got to look at, you know, what are your responsibilities in terms of financially and with people, right? Are you 21 years old, no kids, no family, very low bills? You know, that gives you a whole lot more flexibility in terms of what you can do sooner and the risk that you can take. Whereas if you are like in my situation, I, I started, you know, T already in my mid thirties, like I said, I'm a father, newly father, so I have to move a lot different in that Congratulations situation. Congratulations on that, by the way. I definitely appreciate it, man. Fatherhood is a lot of fun, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you, you, you have to move a lot different if you have a lot of financial responsibilities and people responsibilities. Obviously, you have to be a little bit more smart about when you go all in. Um, you also might have to look at are there skills that you just don't have yet that you need to, to develop before you go all in, right? Um 
And then lastly, this is probably oftentimes, you know, skipped and not really taken into consideration, but you definitely have to look at what's your appetite for risk and uncertainty, right? When, when you, once you pull the plug on that nine to five and you're all in, you know, on the good side is it really motivates you to, to have a sense of urgency to, to move forward fast. But at the same time, it can also be stressful by not having that paycheck coming in every week or two or whatever it was you got paid. And um, that can definitely cause a lot of stress and anxiety. And if you're the type of person that doesn't deal well with that type of uncertainty and stress, number one, you're probably going to struggle as an entrepreneur because that's going to come naturally. But that may also dictate you keeping your business as a side hustle a little bit longer. So um, I never tell someone exactly what to do when in that situation, but I will definitely tell you that those are probably the four or five things that you should be thinking about in your situation to determine, you know, when you go all in or, or if you go all in at all. And so, you know, and I, I alluded to this earlier about some of your challenges as a black entrepreneur, but um, the research I was speaking to specifically had to do with uh, the, the variance in, in, acquiring capital, right? So venture capital, angel investments, and other types of non-business loan sourced funding. I'm curious, have you had any challenges in acquiring that type of funding? And really what's been your journey in building those relationships with those with access and the capital to help your, your ventures? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's definitely one of the bigger challenges that I'm finding with not just our business, but other black owned entrepreneurs. Um, and it's, it's a complex one, which I, I know that this is probably an area of business that's foreign to a lot of people. So I, I definitely want to make sure I, I kind of break this down because, you know, I have an MBA, but yet three years ago, I didn't understand hardly anything about the idea of raising capital. I've had to learn a lot through this venture. Um, and the challenges that are unique to African-Americans is, is it's kind of a snowball effect. So let me explain it like this. So investment in startups typically happens in a progression, right? So, you know, the first pro- the first step is typically money out of your own pocket, right? So that's called bootstrapping, right? Maybe you've worked in a corporate world for a number of years. You've built up some savings. Maybe you got an inheritance, whatever the case may be, right? But you need some sort of cash to get things going very early on. That's typically the first step. Second step is you look to friends and family, right? Who do I know in my own personal network, friends, family, associates that have the means to write a ten, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollar check or more, right? That's the second step. And then once you get past that, then you get into what's called angel investors, which are typically either high net worth or high income individuals who choose to invest in startups, right? Um, and then lastly, you get to venture capital, which essentially are you know funds that investors who are called limited partners or LPs invest in, and they then have managers of those funds look for startups to invest in, right? And they can go from a half a million dollars up to, you know, a hundred million dollars, right? They, they write very large checks. So that's the typical progression of a startup raising capital for their business. So let's think about that right now. What we know about African-Americans is we traditionally have a lower income than non-whites. We also traditionally have a lower net worth, which is probably more significant than non-whites. Right. So going back to that, the very first step in that progression, right? most of us can struggle with having the means to even bootstrap, to have that 
20, 30, 50,000 just to get started, right? Right. Um, because of the points that I just made, right? And if you get past that hurdle, then now you have to find friends and family that also can write that 10, 15, $20,000 check or more, right? Again, that's a struggle that's unique for African Americans more so than others because of the points that I just made. Um, so right out the gate, as a African American entrepreneur, you you have some disadvantages, right? Um, and VCs and angels, you have to get past those first couple stages typically before they're even interested in looking at your business, right? And the crazy thing about investment, the investment world that I've learned is investors rely significantly on their personal networks to even be introduced to an entrepreneur to invest in. So um, there, again, how many African-Americans have the social network, the connections right. that people that have those kind that kind of means to write those checks, right? right? So it's a snowball effect that collectively speaking puts us at a disadvantage, um, and again, that's definitely a challenge that is well documented. We've experienced it. Um, other founders that we know have experienced it. But you know how you deal with that is is again. I don't want to make it sound simple, but the first thing that we've tried to do is just bridge that gap in terms of relationships, right? And that's really done largely by just putting yourself out there, putting yourself in in situations to meet people that can invest in your brand. So, you know, the the very first angel investor that we had, we met at the Black Enterprise Entrepreneur Summit last year. Um, we were chosen as finalists to pitch in that competition. So, um, you know, we got a lot of visibility at that show down in Houston last year. We met with our um, first investor there, our first angel investor, I should say. And, you know, months down the road after the, the rapport was established, he decided to invest in us, right? So that was one, that was an example of where we had to kind of bridge that gap by just going out and making those connections. Um, and then the second thing really is just, you know, you have to have the mindset that you're going to make your startup undeniable, right? You know, if someone says no now, which we've definitely heard tons of no's, um, and you're going to hear no's, raising capital is very difficult for any startup. So right, right. You, have to, you have to have the mindset that, you know, okay, you say no today, but we're going to build up the traction that we need over the next six months to 12 months to the point where, if you say no, you're basically foolish, right? So right. you just have to make your startup. You have to make your startup undeniable, because uh, everyone likes to make money, and I think it's a little bit more of a challenge to show that we can do that. But you know, if you can definitely demonstrate that, people will invest in your startup. It's just going. It's just a little bit more difficult for us for those reasons. No, it's, that's just such a great point around, especially when you started when you talked about like the various levels of investment, right? So like I even use Bolivian Corporate as an example. For us, you know, I'm the one of the few people in my family, even in corporate America, we don't all have money like that. I certainly would not. I don't even feel comfortable. I mean, and some of that might just be culture too, Mike. I don't feel comfortable walking up to a member of my family talking about, hey, would you mind investing $10,000 to help us hire writers and videographers and so on and so on and so forth and really invest in living corporate? Like what? Like that, you know what I mean? Like just the thought, the thought of that, right? And then, you know, we had an episode again in season one, we were talking about a family household, like with the wealth gap, the wealth inequality gap. But there's plenty of research to show that in the next 10, 20 years, that the uh, average value of a the black home will be zero dollars. Right. So you're talking about the fact that starting up and getting all this capital for for a community who has no money. Like we don't have we don't have the uh, the, the centuries of privilege and things of that nature to have an uncle or a, a second cousin who can write a check. Right. And I think, 
um, that's just a really good point. You know, I'm curious about royalty. So let's dig into that a little bit more. So, so first off, when can Live Incorporate uh, get a case of the tea? I'm always open to giving roti to whoever wants it. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you go with the second question. <laughs> okay, so okay, so we get on the tea, and then uh, why why tea? Why roti? And then what was the inspiration behind roti? Yep, yep. So yeah, we definitely got you on the case. Um, no, no problem there. Um, as far as the inspiration for the tea, uh, we always say you know that we, we launched the tea two years ago, but the idea for Roti really started probably in my early 20s, more than 10 years ago, where I had the experience of losing 100 pounds, right? So, you know, I'm like 22 years old, and I get that scale shock where I go, I go to the doctor, and I know I'm obviously way too big, but I didn't realize I had actually got over 300 pounds. Yeah. And I'm like, man, like, okay, this something's got to change. So at that point, my relationship with food changed, and I learned that, you know, a lot of the traditional foods and beverages that I had consumed that were, you know, typically less than healthy, right? Right. If I was if I'm creative, I can remix those recipes to be better for me, still taste good and, and actually serve a purpose to either help me feel better or perform better. And so, you know, over the course of the next two to three years I lost a hundred pounds just, you know, changing the way I ate and exercising more, et cetera. So fast forward to twenty fifteen, at this time I was um training for a boxing match. I'm a huge boxing fan. I've boxed for several years. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm passionate about boxing just as I am about business. But I was training for a boxing match in 2015. And I noticed, again, now in my mid-30s, you know, after training, we used to take a day or two to feel normal again, not feel sore, not feel stiff, was now taking two and three days, right? So Mm. I I started to research beverages that I could drink, you know, not supplements, but just everyday traditional beverages, yeah, natural beverages that I can incorporate into my diet that may help. And so, you know, that's when I learned about ingredients like turmeric and ginger and, you know, green tea and tart cherries, which all have natural anti-inflammatory properties. And so I looked for options in the store and virtually everything I saw was six or seven dollar bottles of juice, a lot of sugar. So, you know, my background is in innovation, new product development and launches. So I immediately saw a business opportunity. Um, I went to a friend of mine um, named Corey Benson with the idea, um, and he has an operations background. He was running a manufacturing plant at the time. He said, you know what, man, like I see people every day that are standing up at the job for nine, 10 hours a day. They're popping the leaves or, you know, popping Advils and drinking Mountain Dews to deal with the soreness from just their job. Right. Mm, Yeah. So So he immediately saw the pain point that, you know, the concept that we were thinking about would address but he saw from a regular nine to five job, whereas I was dealing with it from a weekend warrior boxing perspective. Right. So we immediately saw that, wow, this this whole thing around inflammation and a functional beverage that can help with that has some legs and it probably could impact a lot of people. So from there, we, we were we were ready to go. We, we started to research the, the industry a lot more in 2015 and 2016. Um, we worked with a, a development company to take our recipes that we had created with tea and juice and spices like turmeric and ginger, to basically create a product that could be sold on the shelf. Um, we chose tea because, you know, tea is a very popular drink, and it still is. Shout out to Guru, even though he talked about lemonade. But um, <laughs> tea, is a, tea is a very popular drink, and the great thing about it is, again, you know, a lot of the options before were juices, which is more expensive. Tea is a much less expensive catalyst to use to deliver functional spices and benefits. So we figured we would be able to create a functional drink that's also affordable, right? So we're 
probably one of the first functional beverages in stores like Whole Foods and Wegmans that was under three dollars per bottle. Um, and again, plus I'm 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 a huge iced tea fan, so right, you know, that was a a natural um, ingredient or, or or product to use. So you know, we worked through the recipe process in 2016, and we launched a product literally the night before Thanksgiving in the D.C. metro area in 2016. And, um, you know, we started off just very independent, selling out of our trunk of our cars. And, you know, now we're currently sold in over 100 locations from Virginia up to upstate New York, as well as a few states in the Midwest. So we're right now we're just, you know, looking to continue to grow the business, um, bring on more partners, bring on more investors, and just see how far it can go. Man, that's incredible, man. You know, and down the road, once you know we get this tea, and uh, we drink it, yep, we'll make sure to shout y'all out on the uh, on the podcast on the part of our favorite things. Definitely, definitely do that. Yeah, man. Now this has been a great conversation. I really want to know where people can learn more about Roll Tea and where they could get some. Yeah, yeah. So Roll Tea, and that's R O L E, as in like player role. Roll Tea is sold online, so you can see us at RollTea.com. R O L E T E A dot com. Um, we're also sold in, on the East Coast primarily in stores like Wegmans as well as some independent stores in the D.C. metro area. Um, so, yeah, check us out online, RollT.com. A lot of great information there. You can order right through that website. Um, yeah. That's what's up, man. Now, look, before we get out of here, do you have any parting thoughts or shout-outs? Uh, yeah, I definitely want to shout-out everyone that has tried RollT, everyone that will try RollT, including you, Zach. Um, yeah, everyone that's worked with the brand to help get us this far to this point, definitely appreciate the support. Definitely want to shout out my co-founder, Corey Benson. Um, definitely want to shout out, um, you know, again, everyone that's listened to this podcast. I I didn't get a chance to say this before, man, but when I first heard about this podcast and what you guys are attempting to do as far as help educate people on how to navigate, you know, the, the world of corporate America, I'm like, man, that's definitely something that's needed. Um, like, like, like I think you mentioned yourself, your first generation, um, corporate professional, right? Did I hear that right? Right. Right. Yep. So same here, you know, um, first in my family to, you know, get a bachelor's degree, master's degree, corporate world. And, you know, going into the corporate world, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for success based on my education. But I quickly learned that most of what determines your success in that world is the things that are not taught in the classroom, right? It's the soft skills. It's the, right. it's the, it's the implied, you know, uh, cultural norms that oftentimes a little bit different than what we grew up with. So, right. you know, a lot of us learn those lessons on the job as opposed to being prepared beforehand. So this podcast is doing a great service to help educate young professionals on those waters before they get into them. So kudos to you guys. And again, I'm glad to be a part of this. Man, Mike, thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, again, the drink, roll tea, like know your role, R-O-L-E-T-E-A. And uh, we're excited to give it a little review. So uh, I appreciate your time. We consider you a friend of the show. Can't wait to have you back, man. Definitely appreciate it, man. Peace. Peace. And we're back. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview, Zach. I mean, I've known Mike for a little while now. Um, he's been a great friend and um, 
supporter. Like he's he's always good, um, not only to to listen to you for advice, but just listen to his experiences and um, how he's been able to grow Roll Tea as a brand has been very uh, inspiring. Um, and I'm so glad that we got so much of that in that that interview. Nah, for sure. You know, and in our discussion and outside of it too, we talked about just talked about his history and talked about the challenges of, of building up his brand and really like trying and failing at some other things too. Uh, but, but super happy he was on the show and hopefully we'll get some, uh, we'll get some tea out of this. He told me he'd actually, he'd actually send us a couple, a couple pallets. I don't know about pallets, but he said he's what? yeah, not pallets. Cause pallets is not like that's Cause that tea is delicious. Yeah. No, I, no, I've heard this. I haven't had any yet, but I'm positive that once I have it, I'm going to enjoy it. So, okay. Well, I am keeping an eye out because Roll tea is amazing. Anyway, awesome. Thank you. And shout out again to Mike Johnson and Roll Tea. Um, I am looking forward to that tea. Salute to Mike. Okay, so favorite things? Favorite things. Let's go. All right. All right, cool. So look, my favorite thing right now has to be Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Now, some of y'all are like, Super Smash Brothers, what's that? But let me tell you something. Those who know, put your tea voice. If you know, you know. So look, my favorite thing right now has to be Super Smash Brothers Ultimate on my Nintendo Switch. It's super fun. I play in the evening after a long day at work. And I love it because I can just kind of pick it up. I don't have to like sit down in front of a big TV, boot up the game. I can just pick up my handheld, boot it up. And for those who want to know, uh, my favorite, my main character is Krom. So again, for those who are kind of like outside of this whole video game space, um, Super Smash Brothers is, is a Nintendo game, right? But it's like you can like pit nintendo characters against each other to fight right but like not in like super violent mortal Kombat way more like on like a cartoonish fun way but it's a deep deep game right so you can put mario against sonic you can put princess peach against captain falcon or fox or falco or ganondorf versus kirby you can do all kinds of crazy matchups right super fun um and so it's been cool it's a really good stress reliever um, that, you know, working out, sometimes you don't necessarily want to get up and work out. Forgive me. I don't want to work out all the time. Sometimes I just want to kind of veg out. Um, and it's great. It's great for that. So that's my favorite thing. Okay, self-care. I see you. That's right. Um, so my favorite thing lately has been um, a book called Cracking the Coding Interview. It's, um, it's, it's, it's been invaluable, I think. I struggle um, for those of you who are just joining us, just in case this is your very first living corporate um, experience episode ever, yeah. <laughs> um, I am switching careers or I'm in the process of switching careers, um, becoming a software engineer. Um, and part of that process is self-teaching um, both foundationary or foundational concepts in um in computer science, but also understanding algorithms, um, binary trees, just how um, the very technical elements um, of software engineering, something that you'd, I suppose, pick up in a classroom that I do not have the luxury of doing, therefore have to teach myself. Um, and there are also books that exist out there that kind of help you through the process of thinking through um, and developing strategies for coding interviews. I love how I'm, I'm discussing it like it's a it's a journal or something like that, or um, or an article <laughs> or a journal. But yeah, it's it's been a really important book, um, and I've 
kind of been adding more and more uh, base computer science um, books and and algorithm books to my library um, right next to Franz Fanon and <laughs> Audrey Lord. So yeah, those are my favorite things. That's a sick combination, though. That's dope. I want you to know our library in our home consists of tax law code and regulations and vegan um, chef, uh, uh, vegan cookbooks and regular cookbooks and sister outsider <laughs> and computer science books and data science books. That's dope though. So, oh, and a lot of self-help books. So there's no way you're going to walk into my home and not have something to read. You're going to have something. You're going to learn, you're going to learn about something. There will be something available to edify you. I, I, I even have like fiction novels, everything from John Green, uh, to, to Grisham, to, um, Tony Adeyemi, which again, shout out to her. Shout out to her. Shout out to her brain. No, straight up, she's great. I'm looking up to the next book in the series, by the way. Okay, we have veered so far off track. <laughs> you have good. It's a favorite thing segment. We're supposed to turn up at this point. You know school. what? You're right. You're right. Sir, sir, sir. Not turn me up, Cruz. I'm tired. <laughs> turn me up, Cruz. <laughs> No, I'm tired of you. Ooh, okay. No, 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 but that's dope. So look, you know, y'all, um, if it wasn't evident by our kickoff episode as well as our supporting black women at work section and the, the B side that we have as well as the full episode, we're here, man. We out We're going to have a good time this season. Make sure you keep checking us out. Thank you for joining us on the Living Corporate Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Living Corporate, Twitter at Living Corp underscore pod, and subscribe to our newsletter through living-corporate.com. Please say the dash. The dash. The dash. The dash. If you have a question you'd like for us to answer or read on the show, just email us or hit us on DM, right? We out here. Out you. Don't forget to give us five stars, too. Look, now look, some of y'all actually been responding and gave us some stars, but not all of y'all, though. That's right. I'm looking at you. That's right. We need those five stars, okay? Right? Out, am I tripping out of it? Do we need the five stars or not? We need the five stars. We need the five stars. Okay, cool. Look, y'all, that does it for us. We'll catch y'all next week. This has been Zach. This is our day. Free 21 Savage. Free 21 Savage. Peace. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.